Well, you may be seated. Thank you all for being here again. Um, if you do have your Bibles, I want to invite you to open up to Ephesians chapter 4. And before Emily comes and reads for us, just want to highlight two little reminders here for us. First, for all of the kiddos, you fill out your song sheets or as you draw your wonderful pictures. Uh, please do that. We got some lollipops ready for you after the service. Always love seeing what God teaches you during the service. And second, I know we're a little bit late on this, but each sermon series, we generally try to recommend a book for you to read that goes along with whatever book we're studying, whatever idea we're studying. And I know we're in chapter four, so we are more than halfway through our service, but the book is still, uh, I think, helpful for you. The book that we want to recommend is the book called Uncomfortable by uh, Brett McCracken. This is a, a book about uncomfortable community. Uh, basically, it's all of the uncomfortable elements of our life together as a church. The subtitle here is The Awkward and Essential Challenge of Christian Community. I think all of us can, um, can we all relate with the uncomfortableness of life in this body together from time to time. And if you are just wanting to grow and thank God for that, I do recommend this book again. It is Uncomfortable by Brett McCracken. I want to invite Emily up here to read our passage as we are reading Ephesians 4, starting in verse 25. Ephesians 4, verses 25 through 5, verse 2. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such is as good for building up, as fits the occasion, that may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God, the word of the Lord. Well, we are continuing here our series called Beholding the Body of Christ in Ephesians. And this morning our sermon title is Building Up the Body of Christ, or Behaviors that Build Up the Body of Christ. And as Emily just read as you heard, we got a lot to cover this morning, so we are just going to dive right in. Here starting in verse 25, we see Paul kind of takes a turn in his letter, and things get very practical very fast for how we are, for how the gospel impacts and shapes the day-to-day -day realities of our lives. Particularly this morning, we're going to see how the gospel impacts and the gospel shapes the way that we relate to one another here in this community called the church. 
Earlier in chapter 4, Paul has, has given us a, a 30,000 foot level view of kind of how the gospel changes our relationships at a, at a very high level, saying, because of the gospel, your relationships are no longer about making you comfortable. They're no longer about being comfortable. But your relationships, life in the body of Christ, is about transformation. It's about being conformed into the image of Christ. We, we build each other up as we speak the truth in love. That is, that is God's desire for us, that we would build one another up. That as we are living together, as we're relating with one another, we would be built up, that we would become more like Christ. But, but thus far, he's been pretty, pretty high level. You might be asking, okay, Paul, what is that? What does that look like? What am I supposed to, to do? How does that get fleshed out in my day-to-day -day life? Well, Paul has an answer for you. He has an answer here in this passage as he lays out five specific behaviors that build up the body of Christ. Here in our passage, we're going to see five behaviors that will bring about transformationships in our relationships and in the church. As we unpack our text, we're going to see the what, we're going to see those five behaviors, and we're going to end by looking at the why. Why do we live this way? Before we dive in, I just want to briefly give two caveats. The first, I hope it goes without saying, but there's a lot packed into these verses, and so I'm not going to be able to say everything, but I am going to hopefully focus and look at each of these verses as they speak to how we are to relate to one another in the body. And secondly, I do just want to, to highlight the assumption in our text, the assumption that Paul has as he writes this, that, that God has in mind as he leads Paul to write this, is that us as Christians, that we will be in meaningful relationships with one another. These commands here that Paul gives us, they just, they make no sense at all if we're not intentionally living in community with one another. So perhaps you're here this morning and you're aware that, that this community piece, this living in relationship with other Christians is, is lacking in your life, perhaps. Let this passage be an encouragement to you to get into community as you see all that God desires to do in and through our relationships with one another. And so first we're going to see the what. What are, these, what are these five behaviors that build up the body? And Paul begins his list of behaviors by showing us that we build up the body when we tell the truth. Look with me at verse 25. The Apostle Paul writes, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. The first thing that Paul calls these Christians in Ephesus to do is to tell the truth to one another. You see, Paul knows that these Christians are living in a culture that is just oozing with falsehood and deception, where lying was just the way of life. It was just the ordinary way of life. And having been shaped and influenced by this culture, he, he knows that telling them to speak the truth, he knows that speaking the truth is not something that's going to come naturally to them. And so he tells them, let each one of you speak the truth to his neighbor. So it's, it's vital for us that we speak the truth to our neighbors. And as we read the last part of this verse, I just love the reason that Paul gives us as he tells us to speak the truth to our neighbors. You see, he could have said, hey, speak the truth because God hates lying, which he does. Or he could have said, hey, speak the truth because lying is a sin. 
which it is, but, but Paul doesn't take it in either of those directions. He tells us to speak the truth, and you see the reason there at the end of verse 25? The reason why? It's because we're members one of another. Paul's reason here for telling us to tell the truth is that we are all part of the same body. We are all part of the same family. If we are going to build each other up, we're going to have to be honest with one another. You see, Paul knows that our fellowship with one another is built on trust, and trust is built on truth. There's no truth in our relationships with one another, then there is no trust. And if there's no trust, then there's just absolutely no hope for fellowship in the body. But our fellowship here, our unity together is so important for Paul, for God, that right here, the first thing he calls us to do, he could have listed anything, the first thing he tells us is to tell the truth. And I think that the application here for all of us is pretty obvious, right? Let's be a community that loves the truth and that tells the truth to one another. Just thinking of kids and teenagers, just how important it is that we tell the truth to our parents and tell them the whole truth. Not just, just part of the story or half-truths that, that make you look good or that cause you to avoid getting into trouble, but tell the whole truth. Because as you tell the whole truth, you are building trust, and you will certainly be glad that you did. I think here this, this call to tell the truth also has very pointed applications for our fellowship with one another. Whether that's in our home groups or whatever ways we are intentionally related to other believers. I think that when we, when our, that this call to tell the truth here just, it, it speaks to us and it tells us that when we are gathering together, when we are, when we're sharing how we're being, when we're sharing ways that we are in need of care, that we need to, to tell the truth. Don't, don't share your struggles in their best possible light to make you look better or to just ironically in some sense in confessing sin, you actually are prideful in confessing sin because you're making it look like, like you are a really great person, but here, Paul's telling us that to tell the truth, to be honest with the struggles that we're facing, the problems and the challenges in our relationships. I think as we saw last week in verses 22 to 24, Paul's already told us that each and every one of us are in process. We are all in process of putting off the old self and putting on the new self. So the fact that there would be sin and struggles in our lives should not catch us by surprise and it shouldn't be cause for hiding, but we should be folks who love the truth, who, who share honestly with how we're struggling because we need God's grace and we are all in process. So first thing, the first behavior that builds up the body here is to tell the truth. Secondly, we see that we, that we build up the body when we are righteously angry. Won't sound odd, but here in verses 26 and 27, Paul says, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. In these verses here, Paul is telling us two things. The first thing is that anger itself is, is not a sin. But secondly, he, he quickly qualifies that for us by telling us that anger can very quickly lead to sin. Let's unpack these. First, he shows us that, that he tells us that anger itself is not a sin. He, he opens up verse 26 by telling us, be angry. It's, it's, it's not a sin in and of itself to be angry. We see in Scripture time and time again where God is angry. 
think a, a helpful definition of anger is, is one that pa David Paulson has given where he said that anger is a stance you take, or is an assessment you make, and a stance you take. It says that that matters, and it's wrong. Let me say that again here. Anger is an assessment that we make, and it's a stance we take. It's when we look at something, we look at it, and we says that matters, and it's wrong. And so as Paul tells us here, there is good and godly, ang godly anger that we're supposed to have. When we look at things like abuse or things we see injustice around us, that is meant to cause us to be angry. That makes God himself angry. But while it's not always sinful to be angry, I think the, the second part, that our anger can quickly lead to sin, is what Paul more had in mind here in terms of how we relate to one another. Because he quickly gives three qualifications to our angry, to our anger. He's saying, look, it's okay to be angry because there are things that make God angry. And there are going to be things in our relationships where we sin against one another. And there is cause to be angry. But watch out. And he gives us three warnings or three qualifications here about our anger. The first one he says is to be angry and do not sin. It's almost like the, like the impossible, right? Be angry and do not sin. When we're angry here, Paul's telling us to check our hearts and to make sure that mixed in with our anger that there's no pride or bitterness, that there's no, there's no malice or anything else that would, would seek to corrupt our anger and to make it sin. Because we can be angry at it. We can't be angry at the right things, but angry in the wrong way. And that's what Paul is warning here. And next he tells us to not let the sun go down on your anger. Now, we're not meant to take Paul literalistically literalistically here in terms of, you're not, you know, once the sun goes down, the sun sets, you know, at shortly before 5 o'clock today, that you are now no longer allowed to be angry. That's not what Paul's saying here. And he's also not encouraging you to wait until the sun goes down to get angry so that you have a full 24 hours to get full vent to your anger. Your anger. He's not telling us either of those things. But Paul's point here is that he's telling us to deal with our anger quickly. When we, when we are not to nurse our anger, allowing it to, to fester or to swell for long periods of time. Because if we do this and we just let our anger sit and we sit and we nurse our anger, that is just going to grow into bitterness and contempt, both of which are lethal to our relationships. I don't know if there's anything more deadly to our unity as a body than bitterness and contempt. Those are things that are just going to make it impossible for us to build one another up in love. And so Paul tells us to deal with our anger quickly. Don't let the sun go down. And the third qualification here that he gives is to give no opportunity to the devil. In Paul's mind here, there is a very direct link between our anger and the devil's work in our lives. He knows that when we give full vent to our sinful anger, we are giving free reign to the devil to be at work in our lives. And he just, the devil just absolutely loves to take advantage of our anger towards other people. Maybe for that reason, Alistair Groves is 100% right when he says that anger is the most dangerous emotion. And so Paul here, speaking to our life together, he tells us to be angry, but to check our hearts, to deal with the situation quickly. We're not to, to let it fester, because if we do, we are giving an opportunity to the devil to be at work 
in our lives. I just want to ask, how, how are you doing here? Are you aware of how anger is impacting your relationships right now? If you're here, perhaps you are aware of, of sinful anger in your heart that you've been allowing to just brood and fester in your heart. I just want to encourage you to, to take a moment to confess that to the Lord right now, to ask Him for your help because that anger, that brooding and festering is just going to lead to a breakdown in whatever relationship you are allowing. As we allow it to do that, we see that that anger, our sinful anger, when we give vent to it here, it's nothing short of demonic. It, it sows division and discord in our hearts towards others, and our sinful anger doesn't build up the body. So we, we build up the body when we tell the truth. We build up the body when we're righteously angry. And third here, Paul tells us that we build up the body when we share with any in need. In verse 28, Paul tells us, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his hands, that he may have something to share with any in need. Here Paul is referring to the Eighth Commandment, and he calls us Christians to put off stealing. Whether, whether that was actually literal stealing, where people go in and using their hands and, and taking what other people had, or whether this was stealing in the sense that they were making other people care for them instead of working hard themselves, whatever it is, Paul tells them to put that off and instead to put on hard work. And here we see the reason for their hard work. The reason is so that they will have something to share with those in need. Here we see in verse 28 that Paul gives us the true Christian motivation for hard work. We see we don't work hard simply so that we can, we can make lots of money, we can buy the nicest toys or take the biggest trips, but we work hard, we work hard with our hands so that we can be in a position to care for those in need because in a body, in any church body, we're going to have those in need and the Lord wants us to be in a position to be able to care for others. Now, now, please don't hear me saying that we can't buy nice things. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just wanting to point out here in this verse, what we see in this passage, as God's purpose for our hard work. And, and the primary purpose for our hard work is so that we will be able to be generous and to share with those in need. And on that note, I just want to want to stop, and I just want to say thank you so much to all of you members here at Grace Church, those who give regularly, because you are a very generous body in need, constantly sharing with those in need. I was just been thinking and reflecting on your giving to the Benevolence Fund. It's just a perfect example of this. In the early months of the coronavirus, unaware of, of what was going to happen, so many of you just gave above and beyond your normal giving to be able to make sure that we had enough funds in our benevolence fund to care for any in our church who might have financial need. I remember making phone calls to members in those early days and just time and time again being asked, is there anyone in the church who's being affected? Is there anyone who needs help? We want to help. How can we help? And it was just your heart. I think you guys model verse 28 so well in working hard so that you can care for others. So I just want to say thank you and want just to let you know that your giving has been a blessing to others in this body and it's been used to build up the body. And I did just want to briefly mention as well that if you are ever in need of financial help, please let 
Any of us know that the elders of the church, your home group leader, if there is ever a need that you have, we do have monies that we set aside, especially for the purpose of caring for those in need. So please let us know. We want to be able to help whatever that may look like. So here we build up the body by telling the truth, by being righteously angry, by sharing with those in need. And fourth here, we build up the body by speaking words of grace. And Paul, Paul tells us in verse 29, he says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Paul opens here by saying, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. Corrupting talk is something that we are, are to put off. It is something associated with the old self. Things like, like foul language, things like gossip, condescending speech, or, or sarcasm that, that cuts and degrades in other people, they are not supposed to come out of our mouths. To, to drive this point home here, the, the phrase that Paul uses for corrupting talk, it, it would have literally brought to mind the image of like rotting food. I think uh, most commentators said that it would have brought it across the idea of rotting fish. When we use corrupting talk, that is literally what is coming out of our mouths. It's just these rotten words are coming out of our mouths that have a rotting effect on those who hear. You know, he gives us this image and this image of rotting food because that's exactly the effect that our words can have on people. When we speak down to others or when we say things in harsh tones, these words, they have a, a rotting effect. We, are, we are, are, in effect, serving them a plate of rotting food with our words. Growing up, I don't know if kids still say this today or not, but I remember hearing all the time, sticks and stones can hurt my bones. But words can never hurt me. Perhaps you've, you've heard this before. Perhaps you've even said it. But I hope you're seeing here in verse 29 that Paul is saying like the complete opposite. That our words do have an effect and that our words can hurt people. We can use our words to build others up or to tear them down. Now I am not saying that speech is violence in the way that, that some people do today. But I think that the Bible is very clear that we must be careful with our words because of the tremendous impact that they can have on others. So to build up the body, we are to, to put off this corrupting talk, and instead we are to put on words that give grace to those who hear. He says, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Instead of speaking words that tear down, words that hurt others, God calls us to speak words that build up, words of, of comfort and encouragement and praise, words of, of validation, words of affirmation. These are the words that God wants us to speak because when we do this, when we speak words of comfort and encouragement, when we do this, we are actually giving grace to those who hear. We're not giving a plate of rotten food. We are giving God's grace to those that we speak to. And this, this reality, I think, should just blow, uh, blow us away that you and I each have the opportunity to be conduits of God's grace to those around us and how we use our words. Is this, is this generally how you think about your speech as a, as a means or an opportunity to give grace to others? 
Are you intentionally speaking to, to give grace to others in this body with your words? I have to confess that this is, this is something that has brought about a, a significant level of conviction in my own heart over the last two weeks as I've been looking at this passage and thinking about this sermon. Just mindful of how often my words do not have this building up effect. They are either just, just words that are, are neutral, just speaking really words that don't do anything for anyone, and not intentionally speaking words that seek to build others up. And that's why I was just so grateful for the example of, of Tab that I have in my life. Of, of Tab is just someone, if you've ever had a conversation with him, he is just regularly seeking to build others up with his words. He is just constantly encouraging them, pointing out ways that he sees God's grace in their life. And I think he's just hes just a perfect example. And I know there are many others out here as well who just give grace with their words. They are just constantly speaking grace. I think you, you probably all have people in your lives like that. And it's just an, an encouragement to me. I was just telling him how, how grateful I am for his example and how I want to, to grow in imitating that. I might be a means of grace to, to Donna, to my kiddos, I think to, to those in my home group that God has placed me in. I might be a means of grace to them. Because that's God's desire for our speech, that we would build one another up with our words. And so, just Grace Church, I just want to encourage you as you think about this passage here, as you think about how God wants to use you to build up the body of Christ, which is His desire, it's His purpose for our relationships with one another, is that we build one another up. Perhaps a takeaway for you might be to, to go home and ask a, a close friend or a family member if your words have this effect on them. Do your words generally build them up? Or do perhaps your words more often than not have a, have a rotting, tearing down effect on their lives? And, and we, we all are the, the worst judges of ourselves in this way. We can all use help. So just humbly ask. If you're mindful of ways that perhaps God is uh, using someone else to point out ways that your speech is, has not been building up and has not been giving grace to them, confess, repent of that. And ask God to help you. Ask God to meet you by His Spirit to use words that build others up. That is what God wants to do in our relationships. I think another thing for us to think about as we think about uh, this call here to use words to give grace is just to, to perhaps think about our social media feed, the way that we speak on social media, whether it's uh, the things that you are posting, the things that you are liking, the things that you are tweeting or retweeting. All of these are forms of speech in, in church. They are either giving grace to those in this church who can see what they are, or they are having a rotting effect on them. I would just want to encourage you to humbly, maybe perhaps look at your feed over the last couple weeks and just think, how would a member of, of this church, a member of this body, who didn't vote for your preferred presidential candidate, would they be built up by the things that you've been posting, the things that you've been retweeting or liking as they see those scroll? Would that be building them up? Would that be giving them grace? Would that be having a, perhaps, a rotting effect on the relationship? What about those with different COVID preferences here? Those who perhaps view this a little bit differently. Would your posts, your likes, your retweets, would it have the effect of, of seeking to build them up and encourage them? 
or perhaps they be things that tear them down, things that they don't bring unity in the relationship, but they bring division. So discord in the body, God, people, or not people, church, God cares so much about our words. He cares so much about the ways that we speak to one another. And I would just humbly submit that as we think about our social media usage, the things that we're posting, the ways that we are speaking online, that we would just have a category in our hearts and in our minds of, is this going to build up my brothers and sisters in Grace Church? Or is this potentially going to have a, a rotting, tearing down effect? I think if we have that category functioning for us, I think that God is going to meet us and that we will be able to, we will grow and we will build one another up. So we build up the body by telling the truth. We build up the body when we are angry and we don't sin. We build up the body when we share and when we speak words of grace. And lastly, here in verses 31 and 32, we see that we build up the body when we forgive one another. In verse 32, Paul tells us to be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. In contrast to the vices that Paul lists in verse 31, we are to build up the body, we're to build up the church by being kind and compassionate especially by forgiving one another. As we've been seeing throughout this, throughout this passage, we are all people in process. We are, we are, with God's help, putting off the old self and putting on the new self. And since each and every one of us is still here on earth right now, not in the presence of Christ, none of us are completely new, which unfortunately guarantees one thing for each and every one of us. And that is that we are going to sin against others in this church, and we are going to be sinned against by others in this church. It's just a reality for us, and what Paul is calling us to here in verses 31 and 32 is that when we are sinned against others, when others sin against us, when they, when they disappoint us with their words or with their speeches, with their words or with their actions, we have one of two choices. We can either choose to forgive one another, or we can choose to respond with bitterness, with wrath, with anger, all those things that we see in verse 31 that just tear down the body. These, these are our options. We, we can either forgive or we can relate to one another with bitterness, with wrath, and with anger. And so in light of the, the two ways that we can respond here, God is calling us to forgive because as we've already seen, bitterness and anger, they don't, they don't build the church up. They breed division. They breed hatred amongst one another, which must not be so. But when we freely forgive others who sin against us, when we ask others for our forgiveness, we are building a gospel-centered community. We are building up the body of Christ. That's what, that's what Paul wants for us. That is what God wants for us. As we think about this issue of forgiveness, I just want to acknowledge the reality that forgiveness can be hard for some. Perhaps you are here and you are very aware of ways that you have been sinned against and hurt in very serious and potentially traumatic ways. In situations like this, I think it's important for all of us to remember that forgiveness is a process. And offering forgiveness doesn't mean that trust and reconciliation happen immediately. 
to, to not the best illustration in the world, but if someone frauds you, someone here in this church would have, would have fraud you out of hundreds or, or thousands of dollars, and they sincerely confess, they sincerely repent and ask you for forgiveness. Paul here is calling us to forgive that person, to, to absorb the cost of the sin ourselves, to not hold that sin against that person in the way that we relate to them. But that doesn't necessarily mean that you are to give this person a loan or to give this person more money. It doesn't mean that you, you start a business with this person who has just wanted you out of all of this money because trust and reconciliation, those are things that take time. And the graver the sin, the longer that this might take. And while I do pray that you are never seriously sinned against or hurt in this community, it is just a reality that there are going to be times, perhaps, it has already happened to you this morning, when someone in our church has sinned against you. Whether it's someone insisting on their way, responding in anger or impatience, or unnecessarily being offended by something that you have said or something that you have done. And in these moments here, God is calling us to be a body, to be a community that forgives you see at the end of verse 31, we are to forgive as God in Christ has forgiven us. Here's Paul's reason for why we forgive. We forgive others when they sin against us because we are a people who have been forgiven by God in Christ. This is, this is the, the true motivation for our forgiveness. It is being deeply aware of how much God has forgiven us in Christ. So if you're here this morning and perhaps you are finding it hard to forgive someone who has sinned against you, just perhaps it is possible that the, the problem, the difficulty here in forgiving this other person is just stemming from a, a lack of, of either being unaware or perhaps being unaffected by God's forgiveness of you. If that's you, if you would just humbly acknowledge that you were in that boat where you have been sinned against and someone has sincerely confessed and you are just holding on to that, you are not wanting to forgive, that is where you are. I would just want to encourage you to, to see how God in this passage is inviting you to bathe your heart in the wonder of his forgiveness of you. Not only the fact that you are completely forgiven in Christ if you are trusting in Jesus, but to just be blown away by the, cost, the great cost of this forgiveness as we see that this forgiveness is only possible because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And as you bathe yourself, as you bathe your heart in the wonderful truth of God's forgiveness of you, I just trust that God will meet you by His Spirit and that you will, Lord willing, find yourself more willing and easier to forgive those who have sinned against you. It is, it is not going to be easy. There is always a cost, but, it's always, but, it, but in light of what God has done for us, we can more easily move into that posture of seeking to forgive others. As I mentioned earlier, forgiveness can be hard, it can be complex. I think the details matter. So if you have a, a question about any of this, if you have a question about what forgiveness looks like in your situation, I would just encourage you to talk with one of the elders, talk with your home group leaders. We, we don't have all of the answers, but we would love to, to walk with you here and help you in any ways that we can. 
So here that said, these are the, the, the five behaviors that Paul has called us to to build up the body. We, we build up the body as we do these things, as we tell the truth, as we are angry and not sin. We, we build up the body when we share with those in need, when we speak words that give grace, and when we just have this humble posture of forgiveness. As we do these things, we are creating a gospel community. We are living into the good of what God desires for us. But we can't stop here because the passage doesn't just give us a, a list of do's and don'ts. It doesn't just give us the what. But in Ephesians 5, 1 and 2, we see the why. Verses 5, 1 and 2, Paul gives us the motivation, the reason why we can and the reason why we should want to live this way. And so very briefly, let us just look at the why. In Ephesians 5, 1 and 2, Paul says, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. Do you, see the, do you see the why there? Here, Paul gives us the motivation underlying everything that he's just said. We are to live like he's called us in this passage because we are beloved children of God. Do you see that there in verse 1? He calls us, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. We don't live this way. We don't like. We don't follow these do's and these don'ts that He's given us, and in, in a sense, to, to earn God's love or to make ourselves lovable. But we do this as a response, as those who are already deeply loved by God. We are His deeply loved children, and that is why we can live in these ways. This this reality here in verse one frees us to truly and to sacrificially love others like Christ does in the in the ways that he in the ways that he's already mentioned. It's it's knowing that we are God's beloved children that enables us to forgive others, that enables us to want to speak words of grace or to share with those in need. It's it's when we are aware of this identity as children who are deeply loved that we are free to do this. We walk in love with others because we are deeply loved by him. That is the, the why behind the what that we see in this passage is that when we look to the cross, as, as Paul directs our attention in verse 2 where he tells us that we are to walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, that is the motivation. We want to live in these ways because as we do, we are looking to Christ and we are modeling who he is and what he has done for us. And as we do that, it is pleasing in God's sight. It is a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. It brings him, him pleasure and it brings him great joy to see us living like this. That's why we, we live like this. We, we follow, we, we do these behaviors that build up the body because we are beloved children of God. And as we close our service this morning, we are going to, to celebrate this reality as we take the Lord's Supper together as it just helpfully reminds us of this reality. So as the ushers prepare to serve the Lord's Supper, when Philip comes down, um, when Philip comes down, we're going to take the Lord's Supper. And I think that the sermon like this is just especially fitting for us that we do celebrate the Lord's Supper because what it does for us is it takes our eyes
eyes off of ourselves that leaves us from focusing on perhaps you know, what we have done or what we haven't been doing. And it helps us to look to Jesus, to be reminded of all that he has done for us and to rest and to receive the grace that he is offering us. Now, if you're here and you are, are not a Christian, just hear God's invitation this morning to you. God's invitation to you is to receive this forgiveness that he is freely offering in Christ, to look to the cross and to see that in his life, death, and resurrection, Christ is offering forgiveness to all those who have trusted in him and he has done this out of his great love for all who trust in him. So this morning, if you are not trusting in Christ, I just want to encourage you to receive Christ this morning, to look to what he has done and to receive his grace. And for the rest of us, as we come forward to take the Lord's Supper, let this be an encouragement to you as you reflect on and remember God's love for you, God's love for all of us here in this body, as we seek to be a body that builds itself up in love. And we do this each week because on the night when Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and after blessing it, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And later after he took the cup, and this, he, after he took the cup saying, this cup is God's covenant sealed with my blood. Drink from it in remembrance of me. You can come forth and pray.